It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. We're back for a third series, which makes us officially better than Fleabag and Faulty Towers. Something all generations there. It may be a new series, but I'm still James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Good luck with that, you may say. But I'm not alone on this journey. On this latest episode, I was joined again by Director of UK and a Changing Europe, Anand Menon. And our guest on this first episode of the new series is Claire Fox, until recently best known as a writer director of the Institute of Ideas and a regular on Radio 4's Moral Maze. Now she's hit the headlines as a controversial candidate for the Brexit party at the forthcoming EU elections. We will discuss that controversy in this conversation, but we started talking about why a left-winger such as she is standing for Nigel Farage's new party. What made you want to stand for the Brexit Party? I, I got to a point where I was having so many conversations with voters who were telling me that they would never vote again. And they weren't saying they'd never vote again in the sense of saying, I'm going to go home and be apathetic. You know, It was a kind of uh, furious, uh, bitter um, a sort of withdrawal from democracy. And I was very worried about a kind of mood that would make that and turn that into something unpleasant and I and I felt that and that was one thing and many of the voters that were talking to me were traditionally Labour voters and they were having a dilemma and they, they, they were going to if they were going to vote for anyone vote if Nigel Farage set up a party and I then didn't want that fight for democracy to simply be seen as Farage's you know type of politics being the only association with the defence of democracy. So I hoped that somebody on the left would step up. And when it was obvious nobody would, I thought, oh. So what do you do after the European elections then, if you want to stand for Parliament and you fundamentally disagree with him and all the stuff that Parliament does? Well, first of all, I'm not standing for the British Parliament. I'm standing for these elections. So it will be... Uh, a negotiation and I've yet to know what that will look like after the European elections but none of us were under any illusions I mean one of the guys who's standing with me um, is a, a Danish socialist a, you know a, 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 a trade unionist a dentist I mean that's no and he and I maybe will agree on some things and you know, we're speaking on rallies with... They're not dentists. <laughs> no, 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 I'm dentists. Um, speaking on rallies with Anne Widdicombe and with Nigel Farage. And so there are obviously going to be strains. That will be an interesting thing. I, I You'll know that the... I can't remember what they're called now, but Change UK or the Independent Chukit. Group. That's what yeah, we call them around yes. here, Chukit. The, those people have said, oh, you know, we haven't got any, manif we haven't got any uh, manifesto pledges because we're standing on values. And you yourself have done a lot of work on this values question. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of this particular election, it's a values point that I think is going to pull us through. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I made a decision that I would just do this. When you say there'll be a negotiation, so is, is, are you essentially saying that 
what the party stands for beyond Brexit will be decided after you get elected. I'm saying that the point about standing in these European elections, fundamentally and importantly, was to make a point that Brexit is being undermined and trashed by the Parliament that we have in Britain, the UK Parliament, and that in order to defend the democratic spirit of popular sovereignty and the vote of the referendum, that it was important to take a stand. And to me, that's almost what, you know, democracy, you know, free speech, some of these things are fundamental principles. And if you think they're under attack, then just commentating on them from Radio 4 felt not quite as uh, adequate to the task. And so I took a, a risk and decided to stand. I mean, it's a peculiar one, but that's... Yeah, I mean, I suppose the obvious question is, given you are, uh, to use a very broad sense, a lefty, uh, why not stand for Labour? They're led by a lefty, because the and Labour, he's a Brexiteer lefty because the well. Labour Because the Labour Party have... And I, that's why I said I'd look to see whether there would be a left slate emerge. I'd look to see what was happening, and when it became clear to me that the Labour Party, by and large, apart from the fact that it's played this completely opportunistic game of not saying what it believes depending on who it talks to and all the rest of it. I mean the three sitting MEPs in the North West where I'm standing, all three Labour sitting MEPs have come out in support of a second referendum strongly. I mean not just like a little bit. Same in the North East. Both of those areas regionally are strong leave supporting areas. So they're looking their own electorate in the eye. So I couldn't stand for the Labour Party. Could I? I mean they are Europhile, certainly in terms of their MEP uh, uh, people standing. Andrew Adonis choosing to stand for the Labour Party or being selected to stand for the Labour Party. One might laugh, but it does say well, He loves Brexit. He I'm, loves just Brexit. Laughing. I'm just laughing, laughing at the prospect of Claire and Andrew in the same party yeah. in a European election. I make that point, you know, you can say broad church, but at least, you know, <laughs> in terms of a broad church on Brexit, and remember, I think, and you've done a lot of work on this, I think that Brexit is one of the key fundamental historic issues of our time politically. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a side issue. It's like going to shape, has shaped, is going to shape the way we understand this political period for, you know, maybe a century or so. Everything will be determined by what happens in the next 10 years. People will write about this period for a long time. And for me, that shake-up is part of a broader shake-up of a rejection of technocratic politics and anything could happen. And when you've got a fight that then takes the form of a populist fight, I don't think the left abstaining is uh, responsible. Um, it's all mad, isn't it, Anand? I mean, you're saying, ah, ha, ha, it's funny, imagine having Claire and uh, Andrew Donis in the same party. She's in the same party as Nigel Farage. Yeah, that's once the revolutionary communist. Yeah. So, I mean, do you that chat, seems as, as weird, doesn't it? Do you it? chat to him about immigration? I, I've talked to him about immigration, but immigration is absolutely not the issue at this election. It's interesting. I mean, I, I was interested to see what would come up, what kind of issues would come up. My view is is that immigration, I mean, you know, I have very strong views as a, somebody who's kind of very liberal about immigration, but that you need to control the borders and that I need to be able to win that argument with my fellow citizens. I've always said that. Do you see what I mean? So I would try and win an argument with my fellow citizens mm. to have a very liberal, open uh, immigration policy. But you see, you can't do that if you're in the EU because freedom of movement is imposed from on high. So, of course, what have we got in common? We both agree that you should control 
And he knows my views on immigration, by the way. It's not as though they are a secret <laughs> from him. It's not as though we don't both know where we stand. He hasn't expressed any views in this election campaign when I've been there at all on immigration. And it's not being raised by any of the voters I talk to at all. How do you find him personally, Nigel Farage? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, the reason I say I don't know is that this is a genuine question. He, he really is a, of the you get what you see sort of type of person. I mean, he's straightforward. I mean, he's been straightforward with me and I have been straightforward with him. And so in that sense, in view of the fact that I've spent a lot of time in my life with politicians, I don't find him as, you know, people will say, oh, you know, but he's got reprehensible. I mean, I find him um, somebody that you can talk to. You can have a straight conversation with. Most of the politicians that I've ever met, I don't mean all of them, but a lot of politicians I've ever met, it's anything but a straight conversation. Um, as a wonk, Anand, um well, he's giving me a look like he's not a wonk. Oh, come on. Uh, embrace it. You guys must be looking at these elections. What, are you just scratching your heads going, what the hell is this? Or are you absolutely loving it? Going, this is amazing. This is this is genuinely new and weird and interesting. I mean, no, there's never been a I just campaign think like this. I just think it's fantastic. I mean, but it, it's not just this. I mean, this is, this is the peak so far, I think, with two new parties, proportional representation. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just fantastic to watch as a political scientist. But, of course, it's been going on for a while. I mean, this recalibration, you can trace it back in sort of outline form to 2010. Uh, it got a little bit stronger in 2015. We weren't watching for it then, and we weren't prepared for it. But I think, in a sense, this has been a slow burn. So it's the culmination of many years of our political system changing quite profoundly within the very tight constraints imposed by First Past the Post. So 2017 was and I, an I outlier was... in that. No, do you 2017 think picked up so much of the, well, the vote. Well, it was. It might have been an outlier. I think what you have is you can pick up a large amount of vote share without people having any particular sense of loyalty towards you. I think that's okay. where we are now. But I think it was. It was part of a trend of recalibration away from the traditional sort of social basis of politics to something a little bit different. And it's the something that the Brexit Party yeah. and Change UK are trying to activate. My experience around the post-referendum period in terms of party politics was, I thought, interesting at least which was people often forget the council elections just after, just before the general election, just, just after, after the, referendum. the referendum. Because my experience there from where I'm from originally was that people who have absolutely never, ever done anything but vote Labour voted Conservative because they thought Theresa May would deliver Brexit. You better and, say where you're from. Um, I'm from North Wales, uh, the Flintshire. Yeah. Right? And they, they were... Um, talking to me about it guiltily you know like they were leave voters who voted conservative in council and if you remember those council yeah. elections with some massive uh, overhauls friends of mine in the northeast you know where you suddenly get these kind of like conservative mayor i think in one area mm -hmm. you know things mm -hmm. happening in birmingham so all this went on and then what happened was Theresa may calls a general election but because of the manifesto commitment by the labor party to delivering brexit i know that you know they reverted back to Labour. But also, so I but the, then went home, talking to everyone, they said, oh, Corbyn's a Brexiteer though, Claire, isn't he? So they felt happy. Now what's happened is they now believe that none of the, neither of those two mainstream parties will deliver. So they have felt politically homeless for the last year or so, and increasingly furious. And some of the things which I've discussed with them, and I'm before, and, you know, in public and so on, is 
there are certain things that have really seemed to have got under the skin of people. One is being called stupid, understandably, and secondly is the racism accusation. And this is something which I'm sure that people in and around some of those, um, you know, debates around immigration from the past might have noted. People do not want to be called racist because they genuinely are not racist and they are outraged. So I am not raising that with people. People are raising it with me. Hmm. And that, even on Saturday at a stall that I was doing for, um, for the, in the elections, that was one of the consistent things that came up. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, they think that they're tolerant liberal people who thought about it, but they're not your usual, you know, they, they're ordinary people, you know, whatever that. They're decent, decent voters, and they can't bear that they've been so maligned. So I'm mentioning that because those people who feel politically homeless um, started looking around, and there wasn't anything. So they weren't the people who previously supported UKIP. That is grown now you know there was a UKIP vote can anyway, I, can I yeah. ask, ask you a question on that basis because it's a genuine question I, I don't know if anybody's done any research into it to what extent have leave voters been called stupid and racist and to what extent has that been used by leavers to uh, say you know they're calling you stupid and racist or perhaps not to what extent but has that even happened I mean it's a has anybody done any research into it? I, I genuinely don't know the answer well, to that. Two things. I mean, on, you can look on social media and, <clears throat> and detect a certain tone amongst people, which is yeah. slightly patronising or whatever. But also, I think Sarah Hobolt at the LSE has, I think, come the closest to doing the research on this, where she asks leavers and remainers what they think about each other in a number of different ways. And what was remarkable was both sides... You know, massive proportion of each side think the other side is hypocritical, uh, think that, you know, self-righteous. I mean, there is a real animosity. And she's done some really interesting stuff about, you know, the proportion of Remainers that wouldn't rent a room yeah, yeah, yeah. to a leave. I mean, there is evidence now that actually the anger is fiercest amongst organised Remainers in some ways. Mm -hmm. I in mean, terms yeah, of yeah, and also I think, I, I, I know it sounds... <clears throat> You know, but as everybody else talks about lived experience these days, I would like to note that it's hard to understand it unless you're a leaver. I mean, I have never experienced anything like it. And you can meet people, leavers who are maybe secret leavers. I mean, this is one of the mm -hmm. big shockers for me. Why do so many leavers tell me, particularly those who work in academia, in the media, and mm -hmm. there's lots of people who voted leave in both of those areas, that mm -hmm. it would be professional suicide if people knew that they voted leave. Now, these are, as it were, our peers, right? Mm. And they feel that. Now, maybe they're living under some victim complex. But in view of the fact that I, when I've spoken, I've largely spoken over the last three years, not at leave gatherings, but at metropolitan gatherings of people where I haven't necessarily been talking about Brexit, but where I've admitted I was a Brexit voter, I have been... I mean, the rudeness. I mean, the rudeness. I mean, it's unbelievable. And you do think, if I'm getting that, now imagine what it feels like elsewhere. And I would love there to be some research done, but it's also, as I say, the lived experience. I'm not saying that then that doesn't, by the way, get inflated in one's head. You know, that might mm. be true. I mean, that might be true. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah. I mean, there's anecdotal. I mean, I've I've got a colleague who I better not name uh, who is quite an open lever who reports being shunned by colleagues and you know people not sitting by. Him well, who could that and, be? Uh, well, I'll leave it up to you to decide. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting. I mean, there is there is bitterness flying both ways. Uh, yeah, there's I mean, no doubt about that. I want to talk about what happens after you get elected in a minute, Claire, because you are going to get elected, right? One thinks I might. <laughs> yes, you see, that's proper straight talking politics. We all know you're going to elect it. I know, but I the only vote that counts is no, on whatever it no, is. Isn't it? I Come keep on. thinking they're not going to happen. It's a whole different ball game. You're I, asking, I wasn't. No, but I wasn't saying it from the point of view of I don't know whether I'll get the vote. Oh, come I on, meant, you know you are. No, but I don't know when I'm going to end up in Parliament. I know that they announced it. First of all, they only announced yesterday. Well, you're going to get yes. elected. Whether so you end I up in Parliament right. is oh, different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, it's just that the, the what will you do then once you get to Brussels right, is we'll I don't even that. know if we'll go there. Will you go to Brussels? Hang on, hang on. Let's do the campaign first because what we haven't done is the campaign and the controversy around Claire's campaign. Let's be honest, right? We have to discuss it because... Uh, things that you have said have been raised about uh, the IRA, particularly with regard to Warrington. Um, uh, there's been lots of them. <laughs> Downloading child porn uh, that you've said is it should be acceptable in the past. Um, you may or may not have been anti the Good Friday Agreement in the past. All these things have been raised. Yeah. Are there any of those that you... I mean, are there, are there things that you said, obviously, before you... Would you have said them perhaps if you knew you were going to stand for election somewhere down the road? Or are they things well, you want I, to revise or recant? No, well, first of all, I never said anything precisely that you just said I said. Okay. But but I'm also not going to go through what I've said. I mean, I did a, uh, did a podcast with uh, Toby Young a couple of weeks ago. Quillette podcast, you can all listen to it. Quillette. It's not as good went, as this one. Which I went through some of these things. What is extraordinary to me is I've been involved in the media and public life. That people have known who I was for the last 20 years and nobody has ever raised any of these things, right? There are Sinn Féin MEPs who happen to be on the side of um, staying in the EU that nobody ever asked what they think. I was an anti-imperialist, involved in an anti-imperialist organisation 25 years ago. I still consider myself an anti-imperialist, by the way. And there were arguments that were going on at the time that I was involved in. And I have been a free speech advocate, uh, including some very hard arguments on free speech. Subsequently, I've written a book on it. Mm -hmm. I've not shut up about it for the last 20 years. And what people do is they, and it's an interesting um, example of, um, you know, that kind of archaeological excavation. The people who have done this, who are leading this, are people who will, and, and, somewhat obsessively I would say um, have been trying to find things to talk to me about other than why I'm standing for the Brexit party even though in fact I've been involved in all. I don't know why no one's asked me before and so you do think there's something weird going on now is it pleasant of course it's not pleasant uh, do they want me to renounce my former life yes because that's what politicians are supposed to do in this day and age isn't it to recant apologise say I didn't mean it that to me would be an anathema to the way that I feel about what politics should be like, this kind of renounce now, say you're sorry, say that you didn't mean it then, when in fact I was involved in an organisation and I'm not renouncing my past. But then isn't it a good sign that, if you like, as a writer you can say something, if you stand for election you're held to a higher standard, yeah, if I believe, and those things are, there's a bit of research done and you, this, you have to Yeah, if I believe them. this was in good faith, my goodness me. My goodness me, because this is really, the people who are doing this are obviously only interested in democracy. I mean, most of the people who are now going for me, um, the people is an unholy alliance between some of the kind of more liberal camp and the main people who are going for me on social media who are 
calling me all sorts of names in relation to a couple of those issues are the Tommy Robinson campaigners because he's standing in the area mm. who are inevitably describing me as an IRA supporting nonce pleasant and UKIP have just uh, issued a statement uh, uh, denouncing me and saying that I should be denounced and that I want to murder children which of course I never have ever advocated or want to do these things are being used and yeah mm. and what well, exactly get, I mean, no exactly you get no, to no. a stage where you have to say that something's no, gone wrong no. where, somewhere I, yes well the reason that I have to say that is because people who I thought were people I've worked with as colleagues over a few years have taken something and described it in that way so it's been used by UKIP and Tommy Robinson in a particular way now don't if you're going to tell me that you don't know that a sophisticated subtle position on something can be turned into a headline nasty vicious thing and I do not want to spend and I'm not going to spend my life on social media saying of course I don't think that of course I don't believe that because what would I do what I'm interested in part I mean I'm interested in a lot of this but what this means for politics because where is the line between legitimate scrutiny of a candidate's view views and sort of industrial scale abuse that means that no one in their right mind would ever want to go into politics well first of all and, and also the thing is I also want to state for the record that I don't think this has been a I don't believe this has been done in good faith however uh, as much as I have hated it and have been furious I also want to make it clear that it's fair game you know what I mean like right. it's fair game I, I've I've watched it with some horror, but I'm not going to complain. I moved from being a commentator to standing in an election and people can do as they will. What I'm saying to you, though, is that I've also written endlessly on things like homelessness, civil liberties, mental health, a whole range of things. But it's interesting that those things, I mean, I almost wish people would go back through my back catalogue and see what I wrote and thought about things for 30, 40 years ago and ask me about them because then I wouldn't feel as though I'd wasted my time writing on them. Do you know what I mean? Like, but isn't it interesting that nobody, they want to go for things which they think in a populist way will discredit me. Does that make any sense? It's complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a point where there are layers to it. agree or disagree with Claire's views, but there's also a point, as you say, of being held to account and whether that is being done effectively and but I'm, but I'm, when I'm asking you especially in relation to for example just the final thing I'll say on Ireland is the Good Friday Agreement drew a line under that there are people who are sitting in the uh, uh, elected people sitting in uh, uh, Northern Ireland as we speak who were actively involved in things which everybody said we won't talk about I've mentioned that Sinn Féin have got MEPs I never did anything, right? I simply was part of an organisation that said something. And I'm being held to a higher standard, a higher standard, or allegedly, you know, like, they want to scrutinise me? Why do they want to scrutinise me? Now, the, um, the, the on that particular issue, which, by the way, I think, anyway, which, and so I think that, um, but I have to put up with it because I'm standing for office, that's fine. But I am standing for office very clearly in relation to democracy. And one of the things I've wanted to be clear about is that I haven't used this campaign to talk about all my other passions. It's not like when I stand up at a Brexit party rally, I say, right, now I'm going to share with you my views on mental health or anything else. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, I've said, I'm standing for the Brexit party on this issue and for this reason, and I have argued in a variety of ways why. But I suppose there is a very close relationship between Brexit and the future of the island of Ireland. So in that sense, at least, you know, if there are people out there who say... 
that Fox woman is basically subversively trying to campaign for a united yeah. Ireland through the back door by getting a code and Brexit that leads yeah. to it. There's, there, I mean, it's not wholly unrelated. Well, is I, it? I, 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 as I said to Toby Young, I think that's scurrilous and bears no relationship <laughs> to anything I've ever said on Ireland. And you have to be a certain type of conspiratorial thinker to imagine that right. what I'm secretly doing is doing that. I mean, I. When he said it to me, I was so outraged that anyone ever thought. I couldn't even work out how he thought. I was trying to work it out. And I thought, well, great oh, minds, That eh? one. Yeah, that one. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely not. I am committed to peace in Ireland. There was a referendum for the Good Friday Agreement. And because I respect referendum, guess what? Fine. I accept it. And I have friends and loved ones and family in Ireland. And I do not want war in Ireland. Never did. Okay, so... You're standing on a Brexit platform and you get elected, right? You're going to yeah. get elected, okay? 100%. If you don't want to say it, I will. Right, Anand? You're, you're, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get arrested. You're, you're, you're going to be an MEP. You're going to get elected. An MEP in a few weeks' time. A couple of weeks' time. Very, very soon indeed. Um, Do you get a pension for life? <laughs> um, I have no idea because I have certainly not stood because it's a gravy train. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that. No, no I know. And I've never, I've never <laughs> idle curiosity. I, I, I have no idea. I, 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 people keep saying to me, have you looked at the salary? And I keep saying no. <laughs> but what, what happens after the election? For a start, uh, I'm, obviously the Brexit party has started recently, but it seems fairly clear you're going to have a number of MEPs. Yeah. Has there been a discussion about what happens after the election? Do you go to Brussels? Do you go to be constructive in Brussels? Do you go to just uh, shout Yabu at um, Guido Hofstadt? Or do you not go? No, definitely go. And definitely take the seats. I, I don't know whether um, how long it will last, and one doesn't want it to last that long. I mean, obviously, obviously, and fairly inevitably. Um, but until say the end of October or whenever the next deadline is, one anticipates that you'll be there for a while. Um, I, I, um, there hasn't been a detailed discussion, but I did want to know that because I would be. In, I wanted to go if I, if I was going to do this. I wanted to win. And I wanted to go and I wanted to use it to do two things. I mean, one is to have a, a larger platform to make these points about democracy and to make these points on the European stage. That's fine for, for me and why I think there's problems with the EU. And secondly, because the experience of being there and understanding better the uh, parliament will be something that I will be able to talk to people about in the UK. So that will be what I'll be doing. I mean, let's be honest, what does it do? It gives them profile and it gives them cash. Okay, yeah. You get two things out of this, which, if you're a startup, are both quite important. But I suppose my question on the back of that is, how else practically does you being in the European Parliament impact on the Brexit process? I mean, what, what can you... Apart from having a bigger platform. Yeah, yeah. so... So it is the case that I um one thing standing for the Brexit party, but I think everybody might acknowledge that I'm hardly the spokesperson for it um, in on the detail. Yeah, <laughs> I think at this way, I think at this way, um that's not likely to be the case. Um, but it's interesting because um. I mean, yesterday, there was a press conference yesterday that Nigel Farage did, which, by the way, I wasn't at, I just saw, but which I kind of knew was one of the things that was going to be argued, which was, you know, we now demand that we are, you know, part of the negotiating team or that we become taken seriously. And I think that there's no doubt about it that there will be an attempt at saying we're the kind of, you know, outside of the two-party system. And I can't remember, the slogan is, you know, change politics for good. So if you want a bigger picture question, and I think this is a more important mm. and significant point, and it doesn't mean that I will be, you know, 
Brexit partying all the way through this process, but I think that it's important to know. I think there is a problem with the two-party system, and I think mm-hmm. that, and I think that we've all thought that for a while now. I never supported UKIP, but I was shocked that UKIP got five million votes and no representation. And you know, in the past, just like, under four, or just sorry, just under four. Fair <laughs> enough. But you know, like there was no that that's uh, fair criticism, but I have fair comeback. But it was a lot of votes, to yeah, get no representation. And I think we've all felt that. Well, I mean, when I say we've all, I know that I felt this for some time, and I I wasn't particularly opposed to first past the post. I'm not kind of in it to kind of break everything up, but I have felt over recent times that the political system needs shaking up. And if we look internationally, we can see that the traditional political parties are coming under enormous pressure. This is not just a British phenomenon. It's taken the form of Brexit, mm. I think, by the way, as a civilised, decent attempt at shaking things up that took the form of ballot box, you know, dem- democratic, you know, belief in change through belief that that change would occur if we left the European Union. And whether you agree with that as an outcome, that's what people believed. In other places, it's taken a little bit more of a, a, a more dodgy kind of challenge. But nonetheless, this is a historic moment everywhere, right? Something has happened to post-war politics. That kind of sense that, you you know, as Margaret Thatcher said, that there is no alternative, that, you know, you're stuck with a managerial elite who'll decide on your behalf, that people have been excluded from politics. That bit is being challenged now internationally, and I think it's mm-hmm. coming and rising and rising. And if, ironically, they had delivered Brexit, this is the irony of this whole thing, I think this would have been a relatively smooth thing in the UK. It's so ironic because I think people voted Brexit, we're delighted they won, and then assumed, because they trusted the political system of uh, the UK Parliament, they would be delivered. And their sense of bitter disillusion that, that they feel that that has been malevolently not done is having a very, very negative impact. And I hope that the Brexit Party, standing in these elections, gives it a bit more of a positive, pro-hope, pro-future orientated But spin. if our democratic elected Parliament decides, actually, you're not quite sure about this, let's put it to the people again, and the people in a fairly and legally conducted referendum decide that they want to remain, what would be your problem with that? Well, because but it, it really is that it really is that the, the, the referendum has to be implemented first before you go back to people. Because imagine standing on the doorstep and saying to people, in this referendum, this second referendum, your vote is a once-in-a-lifetime vote that really matters and really counts. You'll get the door slammed in your face, as in fact has happened in relation to council elections. But like, listen, the, the council elections were a massive Remainer surge, weren't they? Well, actually, um, I don't think they were. Um, the, the, Shock the, horror. The, Sorry. The main, the main thing about the council elections and what they indicated was the danger of being in a situation where people start to become... Um, cynical about politics and I've always believed why would you vote Lib Dem if you're cynical yeah, no, 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 cynical. no of course a lot of people who voted a lot of people voted for Remain people um, a lot of people didn't vote at all and a lot of people spoiled their ballot papers no I, it, it wasn't a referendum but it was that sense of bitterness and the I'll never vote again and I don't believe in democracy anymore that made me stand in the Brexit uh, party for this EU referendum and I think the council elections gave you a slight taste of that and you will know that I mean I know Labour Party uh, constituency activists and Tory Party constituency activists and they said they'd never experienced anything like it in their lives including the two other times that big fractures happened in terms of the social contract between Parliament and the people which was the expenses scandal and the Iraq war in this instance they said they'd never experienced anything and they'd experienced a lot of 
slamming doors in faces then, but in this instance, mm. it was profoundly widespread in okay. huge swathes of this country. Dangerous uh, times if you let that happen and you haven't got a positive answer. Okay. Um, before we move on to the features, because we are running out of time, you mentioned second referendum. As I ask you very often, what's going to happen, Dan, and how's it going to all play out? Well, my suspicion is that the last week of October is going to feel uncannily like the last week of March. <laughs> um, yes, I think you're probably right. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously you're standing for the Brexit party, you're a fan of Brexit. Um, hit me up with the benefits of Brexit. From your point of view, from a, um, I was going to say lefty libertarian, that's probably far too broad brush for your liking, but um, from a, a free speech left-wing point, um, when Brexit's done, assuming Brexit gets done, right, and I'm aware that's a big if and there's lots of things, steps to get there, but assuming Brexit happens, uh, you know, what are the benefits? What's, paint this picture of a lovely well, Brexit UK. Oh, no, um, there is no lovely Brexit UK. I mean, no. It, no, it's not a place of land and honey and nobody ever said so. It's only Remainers who think that Leavers bought that. But anyway, just in terms of the, on the free speech issue, I mean, actually, regardless of any referendum, a lot of the things which I've been arguing against in terms of restrictions on free speech and censoriousness have come from EU legislation as an aside. But that's not the only challenge. Um, I had always thought that it was not that um, you would have a, a wonderful um, a wonderful, straightforward solution when you left the EU, but that actually the EU was an, was an uh, a sort of alibi that everybody could blame. And so I've always thought that not being in the EU would kickstart and the process of arguing against an anti-democratic uh, structure from above could kickstart a newly engaged electorate to consider once they were given explicitly charge of their own destinies, that we could have that conversation about what the UK could look like. And I genuinely thought, now, interesting thought here, quite a, a number of my friends, probably 50, 60% of them voted, probably more actually voted Remain. Um, quite a number of them, by the way, are, are, are now are going to vote Leave because of democracy, by the way, that for that reason. But one of the things that, that they said was, they assumed that once the referendum happened and they lost, right, they said like the good guys lost and then we sort of then thought, you know, they were the good guys, you know, mm -hmm. we the Remainers mm -hmm. lost, the good guys lost, but okay, now what are we going to do? Let's use this as an opportunity. And they themselves think it was a thwarted, missed opportunity. So I think there was a, a genuine opportunity then, and people talk about, you know, the left behinds and all that. I don't think it was ever a kind of poverty thing, but it, it, it could have been used to raise a whole new discussion about what kind of social contract we had democratically, what kind of society we wanted to live in, and that has been squandered, in my view, for three years. I therefore hope that we can kickstart that discussion again and, the, 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 and, and have rows about things like immigration, industrial policy, uh, what our attitude to free speech is, just use it to, to re-energise uh, politics and democracy. And that, I, I, when I set up the Academy of Ideas and we organised these debates, it was all about re-energising people, not to agree with me, by the way, mm. not to agree yeah. with me, but to create a public square in which um, those debates happened fruitfully and honestly and frankly and where you could and, and what the reason I'm here is because I've always admired that you've been trying even 
this project has tried to open up debate and have discussions and I you know so much of what's happened has closed them down that I, I I'm a supporter and fan of anyone wherever their political ideological backgrounds are to try and open them up. One thing I say just extrapolating from what Claire said earlier is one of the benefits of Brexit I suppose is the fact that we had a referendum and voted to do it I mean it, the referendum has changed that calculation hasn't it I mean what the, the, there is the the sort of pros and cons of the campaign but there is a fact there is a benefit in itself in the eyes of some people that we should leave because that's what we said we'd do if we had that referendum yeah. and it had that outcome okay. and, and yeah. I think sorry final thing I think that one of the you know you were asking earlier about you know the kind of delegitimizing things you know racist stupid and all mm. the rest of it and one of the things that's come to the fore recently has been the idea that it's a far right project or an alt right project or you know um, and that gets used all the time it gets casually used by the media all the time a far right you know, why and people say far right um, Brexit party, and you know, I think it, you know, I do think that I have to state now that you know, the people that I agreed with on this question historically were Bob Crow from the RMT and many of the RMT members now, as an aside, who also, by the way, had you know, talked to, to, to Farage and so on, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tony Benn. Uh, who obviously led mm-hmm. that sort of Eurosceptic charge, you know, Peter Shaw and people always say, but, you know, also Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, there was a whole tradition <gasps> of Jeremy left... Lever. A whole tradition of left Euroscepticism on the basis that the idea that workers' rights were guaranteed by the EU or civil liberties or women's rights or any of these things was guaranteed by the EU was an absolute myth and actually was the opposite of that and that this was an expression of top-down, you know, multinational interests. But I can't see Nigel Farage letting you sit with the radical left group in the European no, Parliament, no. to be honest. and that's why this like, no, and you're right. I say good luck that, Nigel telling Claire what to do full stop. Right? That's why this, that's why this alliance is so peculiar. But it's true. If Nigel Farage and Anne Widdicombe, who to go back to an earlier conversation, you know, nearly died and had a friend die in the Brighton bombing, mm. if they can say that what matters now is democracy and that regardless who I am or any of the number of other candidates... Standing, but you'd be happy to sit with a bunch of far-right nutters in the European Parliament? Who knows where I'll sit? Where, <laughs> I, where I sit politically is for democracy. And, and, and one thing I've learnt from this is I'm going to be called a lot of names, I'm going to be accused of sitting with all sorts of people, but one thing I can tell you now is I won't be told what to do by anybody, and that includes the British left who have tried to intimidate and bully me into not standing in these elections. Let's be honest about it. Given that, are you enjoying it? Are you excited? Do you think? Yeah. Do you, you wish it? you'd actually got more involved instead of being a comedy? Then no, do you wish you'd I, stood earlier? No, I, I I love my work. I love what I do, and I'm dedicated to it. And standing has thrown my world up in the air, and it's. Not always pleasant, let me tell you, it's unpleasant. But this is the thing. When I've spoken to those rallies, I've just written about it in the Telegraph today. God, something's happening. Mm. I mean, I have never experienced this. I mean, it's not just like people taking selfies and, you know, and asking my signature. I've talked to people, voters, and I, I mean, I sort of knew this, but it's confirmed. People are just coming up and grabbing my hand and saying, thank you so much, you know, I'm a trade union activist and I... I'd given up and I was so mm. furious. People are hugging me and there's a lot of crying going on. People are absolute, and they wanted hope. See, what they'd lost was hope. They felt as though their agency, a very important part of being a citizen, that you are an agent of your own destiny, which they'd found a voice for in that 
Brexit referendum in that vote to leave was being treated with contempt and they were in despair and now here comes along so have I enjoyed that bit of course I have it's the sense of solidarity it's a genuine like a community and I don't mean group think mm. I mean a sense of solidarity of people across the political board and across social backgrounds who just say thank god you don't treat us like dirt of course I've enjoyed that bit it's exhilarating yeah um, rebellions are built on hope which philosopher said that no idea. Uh, somebody in Star Wars. Marx it? did say uh, <laughs> philosophers interpret the world. The point is to change it. I stand See, in the Marxist tradition. You go to Marx, I go to Star Wars. You know that kind of sums up where we are on this podcast. <laughs> it's Brexit family fortunes, and here is your host, James Miller. <laughs> brought back Brexit Family Fortunes for Series 3 because we haven't thought of any new features yet but there are new features coming in this series um, this is the Brexit policy panel the hundred experts who are asked to predict what's going to happen in Brexit and I ask you to predict what they have said this month first of all they've had a go at predicting who's going to win the EU elections who does the Brexit policy panel think is going to win the EU elections Claire the Brexit party no, they think Labour are going to win the uh, EU elections. Although that was before the campaigns were launched. Is exactly. There, uh, it means, it, it was before the Brexit party. They've got Brexit before party the, Before, the, before the Brexit party. Yeah, but also presumably because they're 100 experts is before they talk to the electorate. Well, maybe. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, who do they think is going to do better, the Lib Dems or TUKIP? Lib Dems. Lib Dems. Yeah, Lib Dems from the charge. What now, a disaster they? they've been. And um, they're not Lib Dems, Chukip. Yeah, well, I think that's a whole different podcast. We'll get somebody on from Chukip hopefully before or after the elections. Um, and we've got Heidi Allen coming next Tuesday for beer and Brexit. UK to leave the EU by the thirty-first of October. How many of the hundred experts think the UK will leave the EU by the thirty-first of October? I would imagine that they would think that we wouldn't because I can't see how we will. And even though I think the Brexit party is really going to put a metaphorical rocket up the process, I still think Five. they won't. Five percent? Give me a number, oh, Claire. I, don't, I can't do percentages. Yeah, you can. Well, well, any, just out of 100. Give us a number. How many of the 100? Who think that, that think that the UK will leave by 31st of October? Uh, 20%. Very good. 18. 18 oh. have gone for... It's very optimistic, 18, I think. Um, and the recommendations. What's it called? And what's this feature called? In the unlikely event that this podcast has not proven to be sufficiently enlightening. I think that might be right. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. This is back for Series 3. This is a never-ending feature, this one. Um, recommendations. People that want to understand Brexit, where should they go? What should they watch, read, listen to? Claire, what would you add to the list? Well, everything that the Academy of Ideas has there ever put out... All of our podcasts and so on, but actually, in genuinely, um, the the old films and and podcasts that we did from previous Battle of Ideas festivals, at which there were people on all sides of the argument. Mm -hmm. When I listen back to them, I think that they're very enlightening, very smart in the crisis of democracy. I still think that Matthew uh, Goodwin, people refer to his book, but you know, is worth looking at. And I really like Chris Bickerton from Cambridge's book as well. Um, but I, I, without being sycophantic, I um, I do think that the the the, the new UK the changing Europe European elections um, pamphlet um, is bloody brilliant and enlightening, and I liked it. 
He's not, not allowed to recommend his own stuff. Well, actually, that was just recommended his own stuff, and that gets around that rule. That was precisely what I was going to do. No, because you're not, you yeah, know you're not allowed to keep no, recommending so UK and Changing it's Europe. Timely and it's this is the UK and Changing Europe. Come on. Well, right, have you, you got know, anything else we've to bring got to elections, the and if you want to know what they're about, read the report. <laughs> also, I think on the economy stuff, I really like Larry Elliott, so um, I'd like to recommend that. And um, now that I'm on, I think that the full Brexit website, which is. Um, slightly left-leaning academics who are pro-Brexit and that's why it's called full Brexit but some of the essays on that site I think are really quality and I read them all the time. So there you go, Claire Fox, lots of food for thought in there, Brexiteers and Remainers alike I'd say. I mean right at the top of the podcast she says she joined Nigel Farage's party to stop Farage's type of politics. Okay. One thing you can definitely say for her is that she's brimming with ideas. It's up to you listeners to decide whether they are good or bad and worthy of merit or not. And that's the way I like it. So, as I said at the top of this podcast, we're back for Series 3. We'll be here for the next year, every fortnight. Imagine that. We've got new features lined up in development, which hopefully we will unveil in the next episode. We've already got some good guests lined up for the first few episodes, and we're always booking more. We might have some new wonks on this series, one of which I am particularly excited about, but we'll have to wait and see if and when that person makes their debut. Uh, if there's anyone you think we should have on, if there's any questions you have for our experts, if there's any feedback you want to share at all, please do get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter, or my website is james-miller.com. And you can find the full list of recommendations from the previous two series there, and uh, we'll be adding to that over the course of this series. Uh, UK and Changing Europe are at UK and EU on Twitter or their website is UKandEU.ac.uk. Um, it may be a new series, but it's the same music, which is called Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. Do go search them out. Um, so there's lots to get excited about over the next year. Will we finally leave the EU over the course of this series? Do get in touch with your predictions. On that one, will Anand stop coughing on the podcast? Will I come up with a new quiz question for this series? Will Dan Stathers send me a new Brexit joke? Will we finally take the podcast on tour? All this and a lot more will be answered over the next 26 episodes of this. The Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you and goodbye.